Welcome to the Weird Sisters Podcast, your source for Discworld discussion. My name is Manning, and I'm elevating clouds. Joining me is Liz, who is lifting mist. I can bench a whole harbor's worth of water vapor. And that's when you can take to the fog bank. <laughs> Our book this month is Raising Steam, the story that crystallizes my long-standing theory about the neurodivergence of Discworld characters by introducing them to the classic autistic hobby of train spotting. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's codified now. <laughs> I when I was looking at the book, it I think I saw somewhere that it said it was like a moist book, but not like a wet book. And I was very much expecting a very like typical moist hijinks and it was not like really that like i i did not have this book pinned down at all before reading it yeah it is kind of a moist book and it's kind of a watch book and it's kind of a lot of things yeah it feels like a real reunion episode of a thing yeah yeah i was very surprised by how many characters from other books pop up in this one. It very much felt like somebody's trying to wrap things up. In the name of wrapping things up, let's get things started with the trivia section. Originally published November 7th, 2013, and coming in at 96,000 words, Raising Steam is the 40th Discworld novel and sixth in the Industrial Revolution series. The character of Dick Simnel is inspired by George Stevenson, who is credited with inventing the first commercially successful steam locomotive. Dick's personality and speech patterns are also influenced by Fred Dibna, a steeplejack and host of several TV shows centered around the Industrial Revolution and antique engineering. Many of the locations visited in the story have names rooted in wordplay, such as the Pass of Willenus, which is named after Vilnius, the capital city of Lithuania. Perhaps most prominent of these is the Epping Forest, as the Epping Forest is located in the area north of London, and Epping is one of many words commonly used as substitution for cursing. Raising Steam was nominated for both the Prometheus and Locus Awards. The audiobook lasts 12 hours and 20 minutes, with the abridged version clocking in at 4.75 hours. At the time of recording, the story has not been adapted to stage or screen. Our story begins with one Dick Simnel, son of the inventor Ned from Reaper Man. Dick has improved on his father's tinkering with the careful application of math and constructed a device that can pull itself and cargo along a metal track. He calls it Iron Girder, and he wants to bring it to the world by way of Ankh-Morpork. I hate to get critical right out of the gate, but this whole part of the story feels like it could have been either like much bigger or just like a few sentences of recap. Yeah, I feel that way about a lot of this book. And when I started off and we get introduced to Iron Girder and it's like, okay, this is like an invention story. And the ending of the book is this thing like takes over the world. And then that happens like, I don't know, a third of the way into the book, it starts to feel like. And it's like, I don't know where this is going anymore. I mean, the Industrial Revolution is, will take over the planet. <laughs> yeah. The same way that it is for us. Yeah, but it's such like a, a wink-wink, nudge-nudge in there, it kind of feels like. Mm. 
Elsewhere, in the land of Uberwald, a young dwarf from Monkmorpork gets menaced by a gang of traditionalist dwarfs when he is saved by Bashful Bashfulson, returning from Thud. This is the first in a series of vignettes throughout the story about the traditionalists, most of whom are referred to by the title of Grag, as they attack a number of things they perceive as affronts to dwarfishness, such as the Clax Towers presenting as female and interspecies marriage. Yeah, these vignettes like make the Grags feel very scary and threatening, and the other places they pop up in the book like kind of feels like it undercuts that tension for me a little bit. Yeah, well, I think that a part of it is that they're primarily threatening two other dwarfs, mm-hmm. and that like their whole ideology is infectious, right? Yeah. Especially because of one bit we saw with a like a kid who was getting like a lot of Greg propaganda like that was affecting his view on the world. Yeah, I mean those vignettes like get the point across of how scary and dangerous that the Greg's ideology is, and it works really well. Like those feel really intimidating, and it, it makes it feel the consequence of them winning. Like very scary. And elsewhere, it feels like whenever our cast of main characters come across them, they're just dealt with so swiftly and easily, it feels like. And I think that's just where it's coming from. In Ankh-Morpork, we meet Harry King, the industrialist whose waste management company has made the city a cleaner place to live, and Harry himself one of its richest citizens. However, as he gets older, Harry is getting melancholic about his legacy. So, when Dick Simnel shows up with his new steam engine, Harry sees the opportunity to provide the people with something they want, not just need. So, with a quick visit to the Guild of Lawyers, the two of them form a mutual partnership. The scene with the troll lawyer, Mr. Thunderbolt, is part of a different issue I have with this story, namely how much time it spends acknowledging different ways that the plot could go and immediately refutes them. Mm-hmm. Like we were talking about with the train didn't become sentient and try to do anything like go kaiju-sized or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And this scene clarifies that this isn't a story about a rich businessman screwing over a naive inventor. But it's just like, great. So what is the story about then? Yeah, the, especially the first like half of this book very much feels to me like a nonfiction book of like the invention of penicillin or something where it's a lot of these like anecdotes that have been cobbled into this narrative. Mm-hmm. But by the nature of like our lives in time, there is no like inherent narrative to that. And so I can like see the points it's like trying to get to, but it all feels a little like a little ham-fisted, I guess. Like, it feels like a bunch of puzzle pieces are trying to come together, but they're just not the right puzzle pieces. Yeah, it almost feels like the invention of the steam engine story is almost fighting with the Discworld victory lap. Yeah. They do come together in certain areas. Yeah, it just feels like they're, uh, there's a little bit of friction between them for a lot of the story, I think. News of the locomotive quickly reaches the ruler of the city, Lord Vetinari who immediately decides to investigate. He conscripts Moist von Lipwig, the postmaster and head of the city bank, to manage the development of the train into something that the city can use for leisure and business. Also of note is how the citizens are captivated by the train, including veterinary's assistant, Drumnot, who is known to be stoic and serious, but practically becomes a child when he gets to pull Iron Girder's whistle. Maybe I just missed something. Did Moist not steal Drumnut's pencil in this story? 
Um. It's like, I don't remember him doing that. And that was kind of their, like, running gag. Yeah. I don't think so. Like, now that you say it, I, I, I don't remember it at all in this one. Yeah. If that didn't happen and, like, I just missed it, I think it could have been a nice rule of threes bit where Moist starts out stealing Drumnut's pencil and then just realizes that he, that the secretary is just, like, too enamored with the steam engine to care and just puts it back. Yeah, like, well, it's, what's the point, you know? <laughs> yeah. It was too easy. Meanwhile, Adora Bell von Lipwig, nay Deerhart, head of the Grand Trunk Clax Company, is impressed by her new goblin employees. Their technical aptitude and keen eyesight make them invaluable on the communication towers, and she likes how they can feign ignorance and monstrosity to tweak the noses of people like her husband. <laughs> I guess in this book I do like the expanded roles of the goblins throughout the disc world. It feels a, a little, like, fluffy, like, not super critical to the plot, but it is, like, cool to see that you know, they're, like, really branching out into the world. And, like, I think it is a fairly common fantasy trope that goblins, like, are tinkerers. Yeah. It does also fit into the whole fantasy pastiche. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They feel like they fit and, like, they always could have been there. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we probably should mention how in the real world, railway workers were extremely exploited and also, like, there's unfortunate implications in having... The goblins, who are kind of a minority race, be like the workers on there. It's like, uh, I don't have enough information to make a clear statement, but like, couldn't just let that go unremarked upon. Back in Uberwald, the actions of the Gregs have become especially tiresome for the low king of dwarves, Rhys Rissen, and he publicly condemns their actions. This does not impress one of his advisors, Ardent, who later is revealed to be one of the heads of the conservative movement. Now, apparently Ardent actually was in one of the previous stories, I think Thud, yeah, and was kept around basically because dwarf culture is very much based around arguing and like discussion. Yeah, so it's like, well, okay, maybe he's a dissenter, but aren't we all? Yeah. Yeah, I thought the name seemed familiar, but I wasn't able to like get an exact place on it, but Thud makes a lot of sense for uh, or a grag like that would come into play. I just feel like a lot of the dwarfs don't get enough personality to be memorable. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like Reese is like cool, and like we've got plenty of memorable dwarf characters like Cheery and mm -hmm. um, Casanunda. I still remember from <laughs> way back. Yeah, but the ones that tend to just pop up for a book or a couple scenes definitely feel a little like copy paste. Yeah, they all just kind of have personality of conservative dwarf yeah so while harry king digs into his pockets and dick continues developing his invention moist gets sent out to negotiate deals with landowners and heads of state to facilitate the construction of new railroads along the way he gets to know one of the goblins of the twilight the darkness and slowly gains appreciation for their society this comes to a head when while negotiating the deal to build a railway to the neighboring state of Querum, Moist discovers that a group of bandits has been terrorizing and eating the local goblin population. So he brings Harry King and a troop of thugs to attack the bandits. But afterwards, a number of Gregs ambush the thugs. So of the twilight, the darkness gives Moist a potion that unleashes his buried rage, and he and the goblins take revenge on the Gregs. This story, like has a lot of moments that feel very like 
dark and would feel very at place in a story much more like gritty than the disc world typically is well I think normally that would catch me off guard I think it kind of helps the whole storyline with the grags and everything happening in the background because it, it makes it all feel much more serious although I do like and this is I think entirely an opinion of mine and has nothing to do with the text or Terry Pratchett but I do have a bit of like beef with Moist now becoming like somebody who kills in this book. It's just like that's been a thing he's prided himself on. Like, yeah, he may be a scoundrel, but he's never like actually killed somebody. And like in this situation, it's brought up by a lot of emotions and there is maybe arguably justification for it. But it still feels very strange for his character to me. Yeah, I had been thinking about that as well. Because, like, I don't come to the Moist books for, like, action. Yeah. And to be honest, that's not even why I come to the Discworld series in general. Like, I come to these books for, like, the language and the characters and interesting ideas and such. Mm -hmm. I think what I came down on is that, like, while it's weird, I am not opposed to it because... I think it demonstrates how violence is occasionally necessary and like just neutrality mm -hmm. can lead to people just getting hurt. Yeah, and I think it feels less weird later in the book when this similar thing happens. It just really caught me off guard here. Back in Ankh-Morpork, Moist has noticed that there are still a great many people enraptured by Iron Girder. And after a Greg saboteur gets cooked by an errant blast of steam, he starts wondering if the enthusiasm has given the locomotive a kind of divinity. This leads him to worry, because Zick Simnel has been getting very close with Harry King's niece, Emily. But Emily treats Iron Girder with kindness, and so that ends up not being a problem. Yeah, this is another one of those points where it's like, okay, there's the potential for some tension and conflict, and then it there it goes yeah through the narrative and we never see it again so at several points throughout the story lord veterinary has emphasized that moist should make it a priority to construct a railroad to uberwald while the assumption is just that the patrician wants an easier way to visit lady margolotta it soon turns out that access to the country is more important than moist realized while Reese Reeson was on a diplomatic mission to Quirm, the advisor Arden staged a coup and is trying to get himself elected king. Now it falls to Moist and Iron Girder to get Reese back to Uberwald to reclaim the throne. It's like we are now halfway through the book and we are getting to the main point of the plot. Yes. It felt like most of the story was just how the train comes to Discworld and now just suddenly plot is happening. Yeah. I mean, we've been a little critical of this book, and I think a lot of those criticisms are very, very fair. But I do think as, you know, the flip side, there are a lot of moments in this book that, like, do emotionally really work for me. I think they're well-written, they're funny, or they make me sad, or they're really tense. And, like, in general, those scenes really work. But it's just, like, as a whole, it it struggles. Yeah. So it's like... If this is a book that you, the listener, really love, like, that's totally fair. And I can see parts of this book, especially if you're, like, into trains or the political conflict with the dwarves, where this would be a really great book for you. But it, it's a little weak for me. Moist retrieves the king from Quirm, along with his secretary, Aaron, and they are joined by Bashful Bashelson, as well as Dick Simnel and several members of the City Watch. 
The commander, Samuel Vimes, doesn't like Moist, but they put aside their differences and work together to protect the king. I think yeah, I think this is like one of the sections that kind of really works. Like there's obviously a personality clash between Moist and Vines. And that's interesting, especially since like they have to work together even though you know, there is that friction. You know, like this entire book could have been about that and I think it would have been absolutely great and compelling. <laughs> Along the journey to Uberwald, they stop in Dick's hometown so that he, Moist, and Reese can visit Dick's mother. When Moist realizes that Mrs. Simnel is a midwife and that she gave the king an odd look, he puts two and two together. The train ride takes several days and requires them to overcome many obstacles, culminating in a pitched battle with the Grags atop Iron Girder herself, in which Vimes and Moist fight side by side with assistance from a coal stoker by the name of Blake before they finally arrive in Uberwald. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the action scenes for the entire trip of the Iron Girder are generally, like, pretty great action scenes. In the dwarf capital, it turns out that the fighting all took place before they arrived, and the king is able to retake control without further bloodshed. After ordering that Ardent be imprisoned to await trial, Rhys Rissen announces to the rest of the dwarfs that she is in fact their queen, and furthermore is having a child with her secretary. So finally, like, announcing what has been implied since the fifth elephant. Yeah, and I think this does work as, like, a really nice big conclusion for the conflict that the dwarf society has been kind of working towards throughout all of the Discworld book. But the, like clash between the traditionalists and those who are trying to move past those and just this moment feels very triumphant and it feels like yes this is what the future is and we are embracing it and we're moving towards that together with that moist returns to unk morpork to be debriefed by lord veterinary who in the process reveals that he was actually stoker blake and so Moist goes home to Adora, who pretends not to know that the goblins are building their own underground train system. Iron Girder retains her position as goddess of the railroad, while the Low Queen changes her name to Bloodwen, in honor of one of the dwarves killed by the Grags. And sometime later, the patrician meets with a goblin who has invented a bicycle, and the wheels of progress continue to turn. So that was Racing Steam, what did you think? Like I mentioned, I do think there are some parts of this book that are like interesting and engaging, and but on the whole, it just—it's a very confusing book for me, plot-wise, and I really struggled to know what I was supposed to be like paying attention to and caring about through the entire like first half, maybe three quarters of the book, because it just—it feels very scattered. Yeah, we've accused some of the Terry Pratchett books of feeling like first drafts. And I actually don't think that's quite the case here. Mm -hmm. What it feels like to me, and this is purely speculative, is that he started out writing the book without a clear direction. Mm -hmm. And I think then went back and added the bits with the Grags like throughout the first two thirds mm -hmm. after going through the story and figuring out that it was about dwarf politics. Yeah, that feels like that makes a lot of sense. Something that this book would have just like benefited benefited from in general is that there's like that writing advice that always start your story as late as possible to like get everything you need to get and it does kind of feel like if a lot of the like early stuff with the iron garter got trimmed out it would be a much more like compelling book because it wouldn't have had all this exposition about like 
trains and iron girder coming into existence. And I think that's all very good, interesting stuff. Like, it's very clear that Pratchett was very fascinated with that part of the story. But for what the conclusion is, it it feels a little disconnected. Yeah. If either the Iron Girder development process had been shortened or if it had been expanded to be a much bigger part of the story. Yeah. And like maybe, for example, we'd gotten to know some of Dick Simnel's assistants who were just sort of background props more than anything. And like that could have also been a very interesting story. Yeah. It's just the train and the dwarf society conflict are just very much at odds with each other. And they're both trying to be like the focus of this story. And neither is really succeeding in that. I should also mention that all of the critiques I have for this story, at least, are definitely tempered by remembering that Terry Pratchett had Alzheimer's, which at this point was definitely like progressing very far and undoubtedly affected his writing as it would affect anyone's work. But we're not here to kick a man while he's down. At least I'm not. No. We just want to honestly share our thoughts about the series. And I truly feel that this book, while still containing a lot of the things I like about Discworld, is marred by the narrative structure problems that have been an issue throughout the series, but even more so here. Yeah, like, I'm not going to say, like, I hate this book. Well, it's like, I think it has a lot of issues. And like you said, it is very much tempered knowing, knowing where Pratchett was with his diagnosis. You know, it's like, uh, despite its issues, like I said earlier, I could see a situation where somebody does really like this book and it means a lot to them. And I think that's totally fair. And it's, that's a, a fine opinion to have about this. I don't like, it's not a terrible book. It just, it definitely has its faults. I skipped over a bunch of details throughout the recap, but there were several scenes that basically repeated other scenes in the story and the series, especially uh, Moist getting dragged from his home to meet with the patrician. I think that was like three or four times throughout the book. Yeah, it was a lot. <laughs> and I feel like at least one of those scenes was actually Moist talking with Charlie, the actor who we met back in The Truth, whom Lord Vett and I like, hired to be his double for the whole train escapade. But like, it still uh, dragged down the book's pacing, I feel. Yeah, it's definitely like a choice, but... It kind of feels more like, oh, look at this wacky thing, rather than like, oh, like, my mind's blown. I wasn't expecting this at all, and it makes so much sense. Yeah, a lot of meanings that could have been clax messages. Yeah, <laughs> I feel that way about life sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so in addition to Charlie, we get tons of cameos I didn't mention. Uh, the Wizards of Unseen University, Lucy of the History Monks, mention of the Silver Horde, the Philosophers of Ephebe, and a couple others. Notable by their absence are the Witches and Susan Stohelet, who could have at least been mentioned. Yeah, for all of the characters that this like book pulls out of the entire series, the ones it misses feel very like jarring against all that. Lucy especially, I think, is like a weird inclusion considering that he doesn't do anything. Mm -hmm. And like his conversation with Arch-Chancellor Muster Ridcully kind of feels like a repeat of a very early scene between Lord Vetinari and Lady Margolata. That scene exists basically to say that like, yes, the train, the steam engine is coming to Ankh-Morpork now and it might not be the right time for it to be here but it's like the time that it is here is the time that is right for it yeah that that scene definitely made me feel like the story with the train like becoming the force that it is was going to be like the plot of the book and so it feels like extra weird to me in hindsight knowing that that's like not what happens 
Yeah. For all of the returning characters, there's also a whole lot of new people that are kind of underdeveloped. Most of that is how the narrative is peppered with glimpses into a bunch of people's lives. So that is part of just how it goes. It's not really a full character arc. Mm -hmm. It's just like showing how this thing affects the world. But there are some who are present for the main story, but don't participate in it. For one example, there's that golem horse that Moist rides around and who starts having a personality, but then just sort of drops out of the narrative. Yeah. Like, I mentioned Dick's assistants and a couple of other people throughout the city. Also, just of Twilight the Darkness has so much in common with Stinky the Goblin from Snuff that I have difficulty appreciating them as their own unique characters. Yeah, I definitely kind of already feel like of the Twilight the Darkness just like, replacing stinky in my brain to the point i feel like in a year or two from now i'll just think he was in that book too one notable positive feature is that there's a lot of female characters even if very few of them are relevant apart from the various wives and mothers there's that one woman who moist hires a travel writer whose name escapes me mm -hmm. uh, angua and cheery from the watch both make appearances there's that little girl who tries to engineer a landslide onto the tracks to be a hero and whom Moist gives a talking to and encourages her to be a writer rather than trying to engineer her own glory. Yeah. And appearance from Lady Sil Rankin, and actually even one from Sally von Habending, back from Thud. And this book does pass the Bechdel test thanks to that one scene where Adora and Angua discuss the Greg attacks on the Clax Towers, <laughs> a scene which I believe is primarily responsible for a piece of fan art that I saw uh, where Adora is the next patrician and Angua the next commander of the Watch. Great hand cannon. Love it. <laughs> yeah. Although I do think that just following the narrative of the books, Moist is like pretty much being set up to be the next patrician, mm -hmm. especially because at the very end, when Moist mentions to Vetinari that he gave medals to everyone on the train except Moist, and Vetinari says Moist's reward is getting to continue to live. Yeah. Which is also Vetinari's reward for being a good tyrant. Yeah, there's definitely some parallels there. And like Moist makes sense because because despite the fact that he is just like constantly floundering, it feels like he's very good at getting things done. And he has a kind heart. So even though he is, like I said, a bit of a scoundrel, he does things for the greater good. As long as he gets the attention, it's a, a fine victory for him. Yeah, I think that it's a interesting transition because Vetinari needed to present himself as evil basically to earn the compliance of the city that we saw at the very start of the series and because of his hard work the city is no longer quite the same crime infested rat hole that it was at the start yeah and changing over from Vetinari to moist I think will be indicative of a change in the attitudes of the citizenry to go from just like surviving peacefully to being excited about the future mm -hmm. yeah and it especially makes sense because like veterinary came to power after like a power struggle between different people like killing the patrician and replacing them and also being a bad patrician and you know a lot of conflict and so it makes sense if in order to make sure that he one stays alive and two stays in that position he needs to be very scary and like tyrannical to maintain it but that's not sustainable in the long run because not everybody can just pretend to be a tyrant and moist makes sense where it's like you know veterinary did what he needed to do in order to 
benefit the city and stay in power. But Moist doesn't need to do that, you know? He can do magic tricks and <laughs> redirect people's attention and everything works out. Speaking of Vetinari, I think this book more than any other tries to hint that he and Lady Margolotta are in a relationship, which I still reject. Yeah, I mean, I think hint is like a bit of a generous term for it. It's It feels very like shoved in there. Yeah, it's like, Natanari is definitely very invested in having a smooth, quick ride to Uberwald. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's like, I, I can totally see where, like, they're both powerful leaders, and they enjoy each other's companionship, especially considering Lady Margulot is a vampire, and that has, like, uh, that has a whole conflict with humans, and since she's a black ribboner, that sets her apart from other vampires. And so it makes sense if, like, they can find companionship in each other, but a relationship, like, romantically, it feels a little weird. Yeah, I just think they're besties. Yeah, I, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so for the thesis statement, I'd say that this book is about how the world changes when it changes and rejecting that change doesn't stop it. Yeah. And also just like how the world changing has benefited many people's lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's nailing it. I'm torn between whether I want to say that acknowledging that aspect of change is also a way of saying goodbye. Yeah, I mean, for where he was writing this book, it's like, I feel like that has to be in your mind, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Just uh, trying to put myself in those shoes, like, it seems impossible to imagine not to consider what getting to live means and, like, how much of life is just facing change as it comes and embracing it and trying to make it happen sometimes and dwelling on that for what that means for your legacy yeah and like throughout the series we've seen that terry pratchett was like captivated by death as a concept that's why mm -hmm. he turned it into one of his most beloved characters mm -hmm. yeah this is like not really new territory for him Mm -hmm. Even though it's not, like, the focus of this story. Yeah, but it does just kind of feel like an inevitable part of it, you know? And, like, the Discworld is in a good place. Like, not to, for more stories to be continued in it necessarily, but just, like, you get the sense that it'll be alright, even if we don't get to see how it grows and changes. Yeah, I think something that the books in general have been trending towards is establishing that the Discworld is changing, but it's changing for a way that is better for almost everybody. And that sometimes that change has consequences, like in the last book where there's the line about how everything moves, like everything in the pot melts to the same thing. But that's just part of how things are changing. But people will still continue to live and be happy and get into hijinks <laughs> but you know the world is better than when we first stepped into it yeah all right so we're almost at the end so i just wanted to say that if you like the show please consider following us on social media facebook twitter tumblr all that's linked in the show notes do consider sharing the show with your friends talking about it with people that always helps and if you really like it for however long it continues yeah. You can always toss us a couple bucks on Patreon, where for as little as a dollar a month, you get access to the show notes, pre-use of each episode, and other stuff that will happen when it happens. And of course, from among all of the patrons, we randomly select one person to give the patron shout-out, and this month it goes to JB Funk. 
<laughs> Great name. Big thank you as always to Willow Carter for our theme music, to Liz for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. And to you for listening. Next one is the final one. This was, to use one of my favorite words, the penultimate Discworld novel. <laughs> I had confused myself recently, I guess, into thinking that there were 42 books. Yeah, I think I also thought that at some point. <laughs> But so when I looked up the, I went to go pull up the next book to check it out from the library, I was like heartbroken for a second because I thought I had another one. And but no, next one is the last one. Yeah. And this is going to be my first time reading it. So I will be right there with you in terms of like this all being a surprise. Oh, it's going to be a lot. <laughs> yeah. And of course, we like to round out each episode with a reading of the fan vote for the favorite footnote. Around the Stow Plains, as in other places, it took a while for country people to come to terms with indoor facilities. A privy in the garden with fresh air all around was considered much more hygienic. And if you were careful, the tomatoes you grew would be most excellent. If you don't know what this means, your grandparents will tell you. That's all for this month. Join us again next time for The Shepherd's Crown. Until then, the, the turtle, turtle moves. moves.